Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. All right, here we go. We're in Revelation Revealed. This is part nine, chapter three, part three. A little review and introduction. Last time we looked at the church at Philadelphia. And if you remember, it was like another church, the church at Smyrna, where nothing bad was said about it. It was only good. And it was the church of the open door, the church where God said, I open the door, no man shuts. And so we looked at that last time, and I'll refer to that a little bit in this last church of Laodicea. If you remember, we've kind of looked at these churches as eras. Number one, the church at Ephesus is the apostolic church from 33 to 100. Smyrna, the persecuted church from AD 100 to 312. Pergamum, the church under the church-state union. Number four, which was, that was 312 to 590. Thyatira is number four, the church of the dark ages, 590 to 1517. Sardis, the Church of the Reformation, 1517 to 1750 or thereabouts. Philadelphia, the Church of Revival, Great Awakening, 1750 to 1925. Somewhere in there, and that's controversial with different ones. And then Laodicea is the apostate church or the lukewarm church. Somewhere in the early 20th century until what I believe will be the Great Tribulation. So let's take a look at Laodicea. Laodicea was founded by Antiochus or Antiochus II around 250 B.C. on the site of an even more ancient town. And uh, Antiochus named it after his wife, Laodice, which if I founded a town, I would probably name it after my wife, Valerie. It was located about 11 miles west of Colossae, about 6 miles south of Hierapolis. These cities formed kind of a tri-cities setup. up uh, in the area of the Roman province, uh, western Phrygia, properly, of which Laodicea became the capital. Laodicea was located on the Lycus River and was a major exporter. It's amazing to look at it, but the record indicates that they exported to places, well, some scholars say as far as the Far East, deep into eastern China uh, along the Yellow River. It's amazing. Three powerful sectors in any economy are banking, commodities, pharmaceuticals. Laodicea was known for all three. Their bank was endorsed by Rome. It was a royal bank used by Caesars. They were known for harvesting or manufacturing black wool, which was a luxury item, and they were also known for a particular ISAV, which had healing qualities. All of these combined, along with the supporting industries, ancillary businesses, made the citizens of Laodicea very, very rich. Around 60 A.D., an earthquake devastated the city, completely destroying it. But rather than relying on Rome to finance and rebuild the city, the citizens themselves, because of their great wealth, banded together and rebuilt Laodicea 
underwriting it themselves. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, meaning Rome. They were a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of people. They were do-it-yourselfers. Guzik points out, like other cities in the region, it was a center for Caesar worship and the worship of the healing god Asclepius. There was a famous temple to uh, Asclepius uh, in Laodicea with a, more, uh, with a more famous medical school that was connected with or to that temple. And in the middle of this wealth and this self-sufficiency and this higher learning and this self-reliance and this advancement and this religion was a church, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mentioned by Paul in his letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians 2.1 says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Notice he mentions Laodicea. Colossians 4.16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. It's been said that this refers to some lost letter to the Laodiceans, but the ancient historian Hippolytus and other scholars consider the letter in question to be that of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which he intended to be read at Laodicea. The churches at the time were all dealing with the error of the Gnostics. We've looked at that in our series. They believed that matter was inherently evil, and, and we've talked about the significance of that and the indications of that. Guzik points out one of their problems as far as Laodicea was a poor water supply that made Laodicea vulnerable to attack through siege. If an army surrounded the city, they had insufficient water supplies to last very long, and the supplies coming in could easily be cut off. So the leaders of Laodicea were always accommodating any potential enemy. They always wanted to negotiate and compromise instead of fight. Their main water supply came on a six-mile aqueduct from the hot springs of Heropolis. Because the water came from hot springs, by the time it got into Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So all of this has significance as we get into the meat of this letter. So let's start with Jesus' introduction of himself in verse 14. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Didn't you love that little history lesson right there? All right, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, we see this to the angel. That could be the literal angel, an angel, a holy angel of the Lord that oversaw, that watched over this particular church. Or it could mean the pastor of the church, the, the leader of the congregation, or the messenger that's bringing this information to the church. And then he begins, Jesus calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now each of these packs a powerful punch. So let's start with the amen. Jesus says of himself, he calls himself, the amen. 
the amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. William Barclay says, Jesus is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. Now, in our day and time, we kind of look at amen as the last word you say in a prayer, right? Blah, 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 amen. And then we also have a cadence in church circles where we say, can I get an amen? Amen. And sometimes we never even heard what was said, but we give the obligatory amen. It's just a habit. It's a thing we do. But the word amen is significant. Dr. Daniel Doriani says, amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word amen or imah. The verb form occurs more than 100 times in the Old Testament and means to take care, to be faithful, reliable, or established, to believe someone or something. And amen communicates more often than not the idea that God can be trusted, trusted. God is trustworthy. Amen is used many times to confirm God's pronounced blessings and even his pronounced curses. Doriani says these kinds of uses lie behind the popular basically correct dictum that amen means so be it. So be it. So the Lord would say, I bless you. And the people would say, amen, so be it. I believe that. You're trustworthy. If you said it, it's coming to pass. They also used it when he said, I curse you. Calamity's coming your way because of such and so. And they would say, amen, so be it. We trust you. We understand you're a God who says what he means and means what he says. Again, God is trustworthy. Isaiah calls God, in Isaiah 65, 16, the God of amen. Nearly 70 times in the New Testament then, Jesus opened his teaching by saying, Amen, Lego human, which means, and you know this very well if you've been anywhere in the New Testament, truly or verily in the King James, I say to you. In the Gospel of John, the amen was always doubled. Truly, truly, verily, verily. I say unto you. Doriani points out where the prophets often said, Thus says the Lord. Jesus often says, Amen, I say to you. Some scholars see this formula as just a method of giving emphasis to the statement. Like, really listen to this. But in actuality, it is Jesus referring to his own deity. We should consider Jesus' use of the term, amen, alongside his other claims to deity. I am. Those I am statements. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Amen carries that kind of weight. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, Jesus did not quote Scripture to him, per se. Rather, he just spoke ex cathedra from the chair, from, from this place of authority. 
He said, amen, amen, I say to you, except a man is born of water and the Spirit. In other words, literally, he was saying, it's true just because I said so. Now, how many times have you parents said to your kids, do this, or you better do this, or I'm telling you something, and they say, how do you know, or why? And you say, what? Because I said so, you little jerk, right? No, you didn't say that. But you're like, because I said so. How dare you question my, I brought you into this world, boy. I can take you out of this world. Because I said so. Well, Jesus, I, I pound this pulpit so much it's falling apart. We, we got to get another one. So anyhow, the, the idea is this, that he was claiming to be Deity, God. He used this in contrasting also in his arguments. You've heard it said by the Jewish commentators, the rabbis, but I say to you. So he was claiming to be God incarnate, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the Ancient of Days, the God of Abraham. Jesus calls himself the faithful then, the faithful and true witness. This means he never fails. The faithful. He, he never fails. He never quits. He never gives up. The faithful and true witness. He is the fulfillment of all that God promised in him. All the promises of God are yes and in him. Amen. The word said the seed of the, of, the, of the woman would crush the, the head of the serpent. The, the word said God will provide himself a lamb. The word said he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. All of this was said before Jesus was ever born at Bethlehem. And Jesus was faithful to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. He said, I have to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die at the hands of the religious, the Pharisees. And his followers said, no, you don't. You don't have to do that. He turned his back on one of his favorites, Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, because I have to do this. He was always quoting the script, the word. It is written, I have to do this. He would fulfill. He is the faithful and true witness, he's the witness to the truth of God's word. Another way to look at the word witness is irrefutable evidence. When you look at Jesus, God in flesh, his activities, his work, theologians call it his finished work, it is irrefutable evidence that God says what he means, means what he says, and not Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall never pass away. Guzik points out this was a contrast to the Laodiceans, who, as we'll see, were neither faithful nor true. Jesus also calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. This is awesome. The ancient Greek for beginning is arche. It means a ruler, a source, an origin, 
It's not the first in a sequence. It's not saying that Jesus was the first created being. But it is saying that he is the ruler, the source, the origin of all creation. John 1.3 says it, without him, nothing was made that was made. He, he's the first in prominence, more so than the first in sequence. The idea is, is, is he's the first in prominence. And the way I look at that is the idea of the Redeemer, the Son, was reverse engineered. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain, right? So that's before anything was created. So if the Lamb was slain, how would the Lamb be slain? What was a Lamb? What does that even mean if this is before the foundation of the world? And, and, and so we know he's going to be hung on a cross. What's a cross? It's, it's a tree, right? It's, it's made from wood. What's wood? So God looked at the solution to the fall of man in eternity, time past. If there is such a, if that even makes sense. We, we, we labor to try to make sense out of eternity. But back before the foundation of the world, he knew the solution. And so he built everything there's going to be seeds that fall into the ground and trees that come up. There's dirt. There's, you know, photosynthesis. All this was built into the system. Another way to look at it is the anthropic principle. The entire universe. You know, I love Hubble. I could throw some pictures up. You know I've done it. I love to do that. Hubble has looked far, far into the far reaches of the universe. You know, billions of, of light years in, in way, way back. Just crazy Billions of years, uh, many light years in, in, out into space. The light's traveling 186,000 miles per second, and, and we're just seeing it. It's just amazing. To me, all that's amazing. But all of that is, is to have gravitational effects and influences on this little, this little galaxy out of billions of galaxies called our Milky Way. And out of all the expanse of the Milky Way and the hundreds of millions of stars in the Milky Way, there's this tiny star called our sun, a little solar system with nine planets. If you believe in old Pluto, we're hanging in for Pluto. But with all these planets, and, and, and then you have the third rock from the sun, and that earth is, is just huge blue marble to us, but it's all created for a man that he put in the garden. It's all reverse engineered. So the idea is nothing was made without he, Jesus in mind. Do you see what I'm saying? With the solution, the seed of the woman in mind. So now let's jump into verses 15 and 16. The faithful, the true witness, the amen, the first, the beginning of the creation of God says to this little church at Laodicea, I know your works. I know from your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. King James is a little less savage. Spew. This is not so much. Again, I, this is incredible to me. Jesus knows 
something about you from your works. People say, what I do doesn't matter. This says exactly the opposite. I see your works and it tells me something about you. It tells me that you are neither cold nor hot, but you are lukewarm. Jesus knew the condition of the Laodiceans. He knew their works. You can run, but you can't hide. And he throws this famous comparison out. He said, you're like lukewarm water. Now, they understood what this meant. As I mentioned, they were close to these hot springs, but they were also close to some cold springs. But the water was just far enough away that either way, if it was cold or hot, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Spiritually, this paints a picture of indifference and compromise. It plays to the middle. Too hot to be cold, too cold to be hot. And in trying to be both, it's neither. In other words, the church, let's just bring it down, was too much like the world to be the church and too much like the church to be the world. It's as if the Laodiceans had been inoculated to Jesus. They had just enough of him that he wasn't effective in them. They had just enough of him to think they did not need any more of him. Guzik says this, I love this, Has there been a greater curse upon the earth than empty religion? Satan will have us any way he can get us, but he prizes a lukewarm religionist far above a cold-hearted sinner. Jesus wished that they were one or the other. Come on, he was saying, choose which side you're on. Stop playing games with me. The the cold-hearted religionist or the cold-hearted sinner felt his own coldness and was drawn to the warmth of Jesus. That's why he was surrounded by prostitutes and publicans and sinners. And the empty religionist criticized, chastised him for hanging out with sinners. And it was the empty religionist that hung him to a cross. So Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the amen of God, the, 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 the greatest, uh, the first in rank, is looking at them and saying, I, I would rather that you were cold or hot but this lukewarm stuff is a problem. Here are another couple of points to consider. Number one, the idea of their being lukewarm means they were unusable. Leon Morris says, hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose. I mean, on a hot summer day, Nick, you can get you a big old glass of sweet tea right? Valerie orders unsweet tea and then gets mad when they don't bring her, you know, sweetener. And, and I get it. She's trying to use artificial sweetener, but there ain't nothing like sweet tea. Just good old sweet, hot summer day, 
you get a big, big old pitcher, you know, of iced tea and just chug a lug a lug a lug, right? If it's so soothing, it's so good. In the olden days, we would talk about the nesty plunge. Anybody remember the nesty plunge? Drink it, fall back into a pool of water. That's the way it feels when you when you're drinking nesty iced tea. Is is the idea? And then on a on a on a cold winter's day, there's nothing like a, a hot cup of coffee. You're freezing cold. It's freezing outside, you know. Or if you're out on a deer stand, Anthony, and you're freezing and you don't see Bambi, his mom, or his dad, and you're just frozen. You're like, what am I doing out here? Or some of y'all, I know how y'all hunt. Uh, you know, you've, you're you're not cold at all because your your stand is heated, right? You're in a heated stand, whatever. But in the olden cowboy days, when I was a child, uh, free and you have a thermos. Oh man, and you take that thing, you and you're like, oh, it's just the warmth, hot or cold, has its place, but lukewarm, not so much. And then I think this is fascinating. Jesus preferred cold to lukewarm. He wanted them to be on fire for God. Verse 19 says that Jesus commands them to repent and be zealous. That means hot. But he preferred cold over lukewarm. I love what Donald Barnhouse says. He says, so the Lord is saying, if instead of being lukewarm, You were so cold that you should feel, like I mentioned before, that coldness. Then the very feeling of your need might drive you to the true warmth. But now in your lukewarmness, you have just enough to protect yourselves against the feeling of need. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a lot to say about this. There's a lot of sermons and material on lukewarmness, but let me give you a couple of Spurgeon quotes here. He says this, now lukewarm professor, what do worldlings see in you? They see a man who says he is going to heaven, but who's only traveling at a snail's pace. He professes to believe that there is a hell, yet he has tearless eyes and never seeks to snatch souls from going down into the pit. They see before them one who has to deal with eternal realities, yet he is but half awake. One who professes to have passed through a transformational, a transformation so mysterious and wonderful that there must be, if it is true, a vast change in the outward life as the result of it, yet they see him as much like themselves as can be. He may be morally consistent in his general behavior, but they see no energy in his religious character. That's good. Here's another Spurgeon quote. The careless worldling is lulled to sleep by the lukewarm professor. Who is this, who in this respect acts the part of the siren to the sinner, playing sweet music in his ears, and even helping to lure him to the rocks where he will be destroyed. This is a solemn matter, beloved. In this way, great damage is done to the cause of truth, and God's name and God's honor are compromised by inconsistent professors. I pray you either to give up your profession or to be true to it. 
If you really are God's people, then serve him with all your might. But if Baal be your God, then serve him. If the flesh be worth pleasing, then serve the flesh. But if God be Lord paramount, then cleave to him. That's good. Interestingly to me, the name Laodicea means rule of the people. Rule of the people. It's kin to that word we've seen in a couple of other churches, the Nicolaitans. Laodicea means rule of the people. The 19th and 20th century Lutheran theologian Joseph Sy says, its name designates it as a, the church of mob rule, the democratic church, which everything is swayed and decided by popular opinion, clamor. Let's take a vote. Notice Jesus refers to the church of Ephesus as the church of Ephesus. He refers to the church of Smyrna as the church in Smyrna. Or then the church in Sardis. But he calls this one, this is interesting, the church of the Laodiceans. It's people ruled. A church like this, Spurgeon said, always is pleased with itself. One, one last Spurgeon quote here. There are neither, they are neither hot for the truth nor hot for con- conversions nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither hot or cold. And to the church of the Laodiceans, Jesus said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Let me ask you the question. Think about these things. They're in his mouth, right? If he's going to vomit them out of his mouth, they're in his mouth. How did they get in his mouth in the first place? He ate them, right? I mean, like, I'm just thinking out loud. Well, here's, here's a couple of possibilities. They're in his mouth because they were his mouth, spreading his word making him famous. They were his mouthpiece. He spoke through them. The second possibility, they are in his mouth because he was their great intercessor, ever living to make intercession for them as their great high priest in the heavenly realm. So really, this is devastating when he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You will no longer speak for me, and I will no longer intercede for you. The Laodiceans had made the amen, the true and faithful witness, want to spit them out. In other words, they were disagreeable with his constitution. They were, that's what my grandma, my mama used to say, you know, like, He's got a strong constitution. Or that goes against my constitution. That meant like my innards, you know, the stuff on the inside. And so these people at Laodicea, they were, they were working against the, the constitution, the insides, what made Jesus tick, the faithful, the true, the witness, the, the preeminent in creation. 
They were making him sick. He, he, had, he had to expel them. It's a devastating loss. You'll not speak for me, I'll not speak for you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They were anti-amen, anti-true, unfaithful. They were refutable evidence. Their words did not match their actions like his did. Verses 17 and 18. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Let's look at that. The church at Smyrna, and I'm closing with this. The church at Smyrna, if you'll remember back there in the day, we looked at it and they looked poor. But Jesus said, but you're rich. Now the Laodiceans looked rich. But Jesus said, you're really poor. Not only were they poor, he went on and said, you're wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. And for a place that was known for its healing ISAV and its wealth and its textile industry, the, the Laodiceans were in need of spiritual ISAV. They were in need of gold and they were in need of clothing. Their confession, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, reflected their arrogance and their blindness. And this is interesting to me because we've seen this time and time again in the churches. The churches, more often than not, were unaware of their flaws. That should make all of us take pause, right? Let he, he that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Like, we should be aware of, of where we are. Self-awareness to thine own self be true. It, it's a virtue. It's a good thing. And they were blind to the fact that they had pieces missing. And they said, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. This is arrogance, blindness. And it's, it's fascinating because the, their culture affected them as the church. For instance... Remember, they built the city without the help of Rome after the devastating earthquake. We looked at that. And and they needed help from no one. They were self-sufficient. We don't need anything. And the church had adopted the mentality of the culture. It's funny how that works. We have to be careful that the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, doesn't affect the church. They had lost their way. They were backslidden. They were unusable. They made Jesus nauseous. Yet, and this is awesome, yet. Remember Jezebel? We looked at her in one of those churches. That prophetess Jezebel, that old witch. I mean, Jesus got just down and dirty, and that old witch Jezebel. But then he made that statement. He said, but I've given her space to repent. I'm like, wow, you think you've crossed lines? Here's this woman that Jesus just calls out, man. But then he backs off and he says, but I've given her space to repent. Well, that's good news. Well, here with the worst church, the church with the worst reputation, there have been more sermons preached on Laodicea. I mean, it's, it's a strong rebuke. But what's awesome about this is that 
Look at verse 19. He says to them, after he's just, just read their mail, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, because of this, you need to get hot and you need to repent. He was saying, in spite of all of this, I love you. I'm speaking the truth to you because of my love for you. It's the word phileo. It's a, it's a deep friendship love. I love you. And I'm calling you out on your problems. Now, don't hate me for it. Do what I say. Get on fire for God. Turn back. Turn back. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Let's take this and we'll close with this. This is fascinating to me. First of all, something I love is that anytime you see the resurrected Christ, very often, the resurrected Christ, very often, he's eating, right? He's like eating french fries and hush puppies and fried fish on the beach. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's all, and here he is, he's like, I want to have a meal with you. That means in your resurrected form, you're going to be able to eat. And there ain't no bad cholesterol and good cholesterol. Man, I just see like, I just see from the Louisiana delegation in the heavenlies, there's going to be vats of peanut oil and, and just flat old lard, right? We're going to be frying up stuff and cooking stuff, just just cook, cooking it up. Just I love that. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. We forget all that Atkins junk, right? All that Jenny Craig, you know what I mean? Like, we forget all, just forget all about it, man. I love it. But he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This, is, this has been preached so often as a sinner sermon, you know? Jesus, you know, every head bowed and every eye closed. Jesus is at the door knocking, saying, can I come in? But this is not a sermon, a message. The context is not Jesus preaching to sinners. This is a church with Jesus on the outside and not on the inside. A a church that he loves. Loves them enough to chasten them and rebuke them. Call them out and say, please, let me come in. I can warm your heart. I can talk to you about the covenant. I can intercede on your behalf. You can be my mouthpiece in the world. And and, and this is coming from the master who just told the church of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, I open doors that no man can shut, and I shut doors that no man can open. But here, he's on the outside of a shut door that he didn't shut, and he's not opening. He's knocking. What does that tell me? It tells me that he gives to us the same power he has to either open the door for his being in our midst or closing him out of it. And he will not violate our choice. But if we let him in, if the church, I'm telling you, here's what revival is. When the church says, Jesus, come back. Jesus, reconnect with me. Jesus, like we started this with Ephesus returning to his first love. 
Jesus, I'm coming back. I've shut you out. How many of us have shut Jesus out of church, shut him out of our religious experience so we can go through the motions? You know, we'll talk about religious people going through very obvious motions and different rituals and incantations and whatnot. But some of us in, in you know, the, the loosey-goosey churches go through the same motions. And Jesus is on the outside. And I just feel the conviction in this scripture and from the master, the faithful and true The amen of God. The preeminent in all that has been created. The blueprint for everything. And he says, will you let me, will you let me in? You've shut me out. Come on, I want to sit down and fellowship. Have communion with you. Celebrate covenant with you. And then verses 21 through 22. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We're going to see a lot about thrones in the book of Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that means that what's being said here is not just for the Laodiceans, but it's to all the churches throughout the ages. Laodicea represents an apostate church. Won't you stand with me? Laodicea represents a backslidden church, a church that has church without Jesus on the inside, a church where Jesus knocks to get back in. And I would say that, of course, I believe there's an era there, and we seem to be living in that era, but there's always a remnant. And I want to be part of that body of believers that says I'm not content to do church with Jesus on the outside I want Jesus in our midst the king is here the king is here the king has returned you know when David brought the ark of the covenant into the city of David when he had retrieved it after it had been stolen by the Philistines He learned his lesson. In every six paces, he offered sacrifices and praised and thanked God until he got into Jerusalem, put it in its place, and then he went nuts, danced and worshiped and praised God because he had opened a door that God wouldn't open himself. He had opened a door, and then God stepped in, stepped through, and was able to govern and rule and warm his heart and fire him up. And they had amazing victory and blessings because of that. What would happen if we as individuals and collectively as a church said, okay, Jesus, this is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad. I'm going to enter into your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. I'm inviting you, Lord, come into my life, come into my heart. I mean, that sounds like sinner's prayers, right? Come into my heart. Come into my world. Come into my life. Come into this house. Lord, be the Lord of my life. Lord, guide me. Speak to me. Warm my heart. Be honest with me. I've strayed so far. 
I wandered off. I don't feel the fire. I don't feel the passion. I'm not, I'm not all off in the world, but I'm not all off in you, Lord. And that honesty, that confession, that realism, open the eyes of my heart, God. Put an eye salve. Heal my eyes to see. I need you. I need your help. God could answer that prayer. That's my point. God can answer that prayer. Is that what you want? You want Jesus in the midst, in your family, in your church? I do. Lift your hands to him right now. Can you do it, Jesus? We're inviting you into this house, Lord. We're opening a door, Lord, that you've chosen not to open. You put the responsibility on us. You're knocking. Pray, God, we would open that door right now. Jesus, and we praise. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed by the preaching of God's Word. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, or if you plan to attend one of our services, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.